Good morning. I feel like I'm on up here. How are we doing? All right. Good morning. <laughs> uh, if you could just take a moment and pray for me. I got this tickle in my throat while, we, while I was sitting over there, and uh, it's been plaguing me. So we're in Mark chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, pull it out. We're going to turn there. Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. <coughs> and <coughs> we've been following... The progression of Jesus all the way through the book of Mark, he is in the temple in Jerusalem right now. This is the week of his passion, the last week of his life leading up to the crucifixion. And he has been in the temple condemning the temple. He has flipped the tables of the money changers. Thank you. And he's driven them out at the end of a whip. And these are money changers that the Sanhedrin has condoned. They have, they've allowed them to be there. They've approved of it. And the Sanhedrin was seeing Jesus as a threat. Jesus had gained a great following, but that's not why Jesus was a threat. Jesus was a threat because he was condemning the temple, the center of, of worship for, for all Judaism. And now he seems to be centering worship in the human heart. He has said, Jesus has said that the Sabbath is not about ceremony and ritual, not one day a week, but he's saying it's about continual rest in himself. Jesus is upending the ritualistic sacrifices that remove sins, and he's saying that forgiveness of sins is found in himself. Jesus seems to be tearing down the entire Jewish system, and these Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes, they see Jesus as a threat. Everything that they believe, everything that that gives them authority and honor, he's destroying the old covenant. What gives him the right? Not only that, he's taking the old covenant, he seems to be replacing it with himself. And in their eyes, this is the supreme act of arrogance and blasphemy. And so they send this delegation out to him. Last week we saw that to ask him what gives him the right. Who gave him the authority to do such things, to act like this? And and Jesus answers them so masterfully with authority that only God can wield. And then most contentiously of all, he says to these religious leaders, if you go on behaving like this, if you go on in your unbelief and abusing the law, you will be destroyed. And the Sanhedrin, they were angry before. Now it's like they're, they're rabidly foaming at the mouth in anger against Jesus. The Sanhedrin, they are the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, these three factions. And, and we're going to see, starting in our passage today and moving forward for the next two weeks, that each one of these factions, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, and the scribes, they take their shots at Jesus, trying to get him to stumble, trying to to trip him up in front of the crowds and condemn him in some way. And no longer are these, is the Sanhedrin or the religious leaders opposing Jesus in subtleties, trying to kind of covertly do this, but now their aggression is open and um, 
flagrant for everybody to see. And today we come to the first of these three challenges. The Pharisees get to take their shot. Get to try to condemn Jesus. And as we do this, as we walk through this passage, I am going to spend a little bit more time today talking about historical things because it's going to give us a picture of what's going on in the temple in Jerusalem at the time. This drama, this tension that's building and growing. You could swim through it. And then I'm going to show you in our passage specifically how Jesus relates politics to the kingdom of God. So we're going to get a little political. All right, let's read our passage. Chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let's pray. Father, we commit this time to you. We commit our hearts to you under your word, and we pray that you would use your word to change us. Oh, that we would, that our worldview would be aligned with your word. Help us to understand. Help us to have the heart of Jesus. Give us, give us what we're not able to summon ourselves, eyes to see in the spiritual realm. Lord, we desire to not get caught up in the things of this world, to get, but to get caught up in the things of eternity, the things of the, your kingdom. And we need you to do this work in us. Help us. Keep me from error. Give me the words, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Pharisaic faction, they approached Jesus, sent from the Sanhedrin, but what's really weird and curious about this situation is that the, it's that the Pharisees and the Herodians come to Jesus together as allies. But if nothing else, this is an awkward allegiance. You see, the Herodians, everything that we know about them says that they were sympathizers with Herod, who was the puppet king of Rome. And so the Herodians were secular. They adopted the lifestyle of the Greeks and the Romans. The Herodians, in, in principle, were everything that the Pharisees were opposed to. The Pharisees were extremely religious, devoted to the law. They wanted to see ethnic and religious purity, not foreign secularism. So the Herodians and the Pharisees should not have been working together at all. And I mentioned that to show you that these two groups, normally not working together, are allied over the same thing, and that is hatred towards Jesus. And it's important for us to see that 
because of hatred towards Jesus, the religious and the secular will form an opposition. It's true of Jesus then, and it's true of us today. Religious and secular ally themselves against the followers of Christ. So these two groups, the Herodians and the Pharisees, united in their contempt for Jesus, coming from the highest religious authority on the face of the planet, they get together, they plot to set a trap, how they can get Jesus, how they can convict him in front of the people or in front of Rome. And what they come up, up, what they come up with is absolutely ingenious. It really is. And before we get to that trap, though, I'm going to do some of this historical context stage setting. We, we have to feel the drama here. So when the Pharisees and the Herodians approach Jesus, we need to realize that it's in the temple, and the temple is absolutely packed with people. People, Jews, from all over the known world are traveling to Jerusalem in preparation for the Passover festival. And at the center of the Passover activities and preparations was the temple. And so they're, they're gathered in there. They're slammed in there. I imagine it's very loud in there. People are shouldering just to get through the crowd, pushing their way through. And, and then this group from the Sanhedrin begins moving through the crowd or trying to move through the crowd. And I think what would happen is the crowds would have parted for the Sanhedrin. They were conspicuous. They, they wore long robes. They were... They stood out. Everybody knew who they were. They knew the authority that they carried. And so when they wanted to move through the crowd, the crowd parted. And the crowd would have been watching. So here comes the religious leaders of the day, like the top people. They would have been watching. Where are they going? What are they doing? I think all eyes would have been on them as they were going. But all eyes already were on Jesus. Because Jesus had become this really famous messianic figure in in Judea, in Galilee, and all of Palestine and beyond. And in Luke 19.48, it talks about how the crowds were riveted by his words. It says that the the people hung on his every word. So the main event in the temple was preparations for the Passover, but I think everybody was really there to see Jesus, to catch a glimpse of Jesus. It's like watching a wedding for the hats. which I really don't get. But I think Jesus was why people were really going to the temple. Now, all of the people already knew about the religious leaders' contempt for Jesus. This was not secret. This was not hidden. In John 7, Jesus is at the temple for the the Sukkot festival. This would have happened before, obviously, this incident in the temple, and it says that the people were afraid even to speak of Jesus due to what the religious leaders would do to them for for speaking of Jesus. And now Jesus had just flipped the tables the day before, so you know there's tension, you know the people are aware of that. Everybody in Jerusalem is talking about, did you see what happened in the temple? This crazy guy, this messianic figure comes in and he flips the the, the, the tables, which everybody knows the Sanhedrin condones, so the tension is palpable. And the Pharisees and Herodians approach Jesus. Everybody's watching. And they approach Jesus. And imagine this hush falls over the crowds. Probably more people pack in to see what happens. 
Let's look at verse 14. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Oh, look how they flattered Jesus. But they, they don't believe a word of what they're saying. They're flattering Jesus not because they respect Jesus. They're flattering Jesus because they want to maintain good position with the crowds that do respect Jesus. So they prop Jesus up with this flattery in front of all the people. They pretend to regard him highly so they can accommodate the consensus of the crowds. They're baiting the trap. And then they drop the question that they really came for. Should we pay the tax or not? All right, more history. What is this tax? It's the poll tax. It's the head tax. It was a tax that every Jewish male over 20 years old had to pay to Rome, and the tax was a denarius. It was a tax that went directly to funding the occupying Roman army. It was a tax that was hated all over the Roman world, and especially in in Judea, in in Palestine. This tax, this specific tax, birthed a movement in Galilee 26 years before this event, the Zealot Movement. And they had a revolt, and they were all killed by the Romans, but this Fire would grow and grow until we get to 66 AD and there is this revolt against Rome and the the Roman armies converge on Judea and in 70 AD they destroy this revolt and Jerusalem and the temple because of this tax. And these Jews hated the tax so much Because it implied that they were Rome's possession. And Rome could exploit them as they liked, as if they were Rome's slaves. A resource to be exploited. But the Jews were not owned by Rome. They were God's chosen people. A people of his possession. Only God had this authority over them. And here's another foreign invading country saying that they have the authority over them. And they hated this. It went against their identity as a people. So if Jesus says, yeah, pay the tax, the Pharisees were there to accuse Jesus of saying you're being disloyal to to Israel and worse, disloyal to God. If he says, yes, pay the tax, surely he is not the Messiah. He is not there to overthrow Rome. And the people would, he would be discredited in the people's eyes and the people would leave him. Now if Jesus says, no, do not pay the tax, well, there were the the Herodians. And they would have quickly gone to the Romans and said, this man is influencing people not to pay the tax. And immediately Jesus would have been labeled an enemy of the state, a rebel. At best, he would have been imprisoned, but more likely, he would have been killed. And the crucifixion, or rather, the execution that was invented for rebels, enemies of the state against Rome, was crucifixion. 
And I think that that's how the Pharisees and the Herodians all wanted this to go. That's probably how they expected this to go, being that he's this messianic figure. And then, and of course, Jesus sees this trap for what it is, and the Herodians and the Pharisees for who they are. So look at verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Hypocrites. He sees right through their hypocrisy. He, he sees these kind words. He's hearing these kind words and he knows that they don't believe a word of what they're saying. The only reason that they're saying that is so they can garner respect from the people. But they're hating Jesus. And I'm reminded of, of what Jesus quoted back in Mark chapter 7. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Hypocrites, whose lips are near to him and his hearts are far. Each word that these religious leaders offer is a kindness and a wickedness. Because they are words being used to leverage the death or imprisonment of the Son of God. And remember, the whole line of questioning happening in front of throngs of Jews, all watching, recognizing the tension, recognizing the opposition. And then, and then Jesus asks, why do you put me to the test? Or I think we would say something like, why are you trying to discredit me in front of all of these people? Again, why are you trying to discredit me? And he asks for, his, for the denarius. And there are two very interesting ironies here. First of all, the greatest king on earth, Caesar, owns all of the money. In fact, literally every coin that was minted coming out of Rome was minted out of his personal silver. So this was literally his coin. So the irony is that the greatest king on earth has all the wealth, and yet the creator, the king of the heavens and the earth, the God of the universe, doesn't have a coin at all. He is broke, and he needs somebody to give him the money. And then the second irony is that Jesus does not seem to be prepared to pay the poll tax, and his opposition does. Because it's the Pharisees that produce the denarius. Look at verse 16. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. So a little bit about this inscription on the denarius. And I think we have an image for it. Yes. All right, so this is Tiberius, uh, Tiberius Caesar's image. And uh, you see some Latin markings around it. It's really an abbreviation for Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. Or Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of God. The back bore the image of, of Tiberius's mother, Livia. And the inscription there reads, High Priest. Now that's not calling Livia the High Priest. That's calling Caesar 
the high priest. Rome looks a lot like a one-world government and a one-world religion. And this coin itself is a blasphemy against God to support this system that produces such coinage could easily be construed as blasphemy. And it could spark the Pharisees, it could be the spark that the Pharisees are looking for to ignite this crowd, if he supports this. And then Jesus wields a wisdom that is both stunning and it shows him to be the supreme authority. And it These words are are few, but man, are they nuanced and full of depth, and the time that I have is so inadequate to to go into everything that comes out of these few words that Jesus says in verse 17. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. They marveled at him. I think this is a simple, straightforward response. I think at face value, maybe in our, because of my culture, the secular Herodians and and the crowd, to marvel. He answers both perfectly. He will not be manipulated into either position, and then he blows their mind in the process. So first, Jesus legitimizes human governments, while at the same time, immediately distancing himself from the zealots. He shows that he is not the kind of Messiah that the people are looking for. He will not be a political anarchist like the people want him to be. He will not throw off Rome. Where government is concerned, Jesus says, give them what they are due. Be a good citizen. And this is a time when there was a foreign occupying force that ruled with a heavy hand, they promoted sexual immorality and violence, and they had little regard for human life. They taxed people heavily. They taxed people without representation. Paul would go on to expound on this idea in a time when this oppressive government was even more crazy killing Christians just because they were Christians. And Paul writes at that time, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that have and those that exist have been instituted by God. For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God. That's Romans thirteen, one and six. So pay your taxes. And pay as if you are giving money to people that God has appointed. View paying your taxes as obedience to God. And not as something to grumble over. Not as something to to try to find loopholes in so you don't have to give what you're required to give. Report all of your earnings and pay taxes on it. That's an easy one not to do. But this word render, as in render to Caesar, this word is a little bit challenging to translate into English. It literally would mean something like pay back 
what he deserves. And now here we get into some of these nuances. Because, yeah, the coin is Caesar's, literally minted out of his wealth, so pay that back to him. But Caesar demands that you worship him. He does not deserve that. Do not pay that back to him. Does Caesar deserve some resistance for his injustices? Yes. Does he deserve some resistance for presuming due to war or threat of war that these countless peoples are his, his possession to exploit? Does he deserve resistance for that? Yes. Pay him back what he is due when his power and his authority oversteps. Resist the government where it deserves to be resisted. And Jesus immediately, in his answer, shows himself to not be a rebel or a political partisan. He is neither an anarchist nor a patriotic citizen. The Herodians could not claim that Jesus was telling the people to pay the tax. The Pharisees could not claim that Jesus was disloyal to Israel or God. Both parties are silenced. Neither party leverages Jesus in either direction, and Jesus totally transcends the question. And there's another thing, the really stunning thing. Render to God the things that are God's. What's Jesus saying? Caesar gets the tax. God gets the tithe. Caesar gets a denarius. God gets 10%. Not even close. I don't have time to get into it, but the tithe is being exploded. And I would say, under the new covenant, there is no such thing as a tithe. Whose image is on the coin? Caesar's. So give Caesar the denarius that he is due. Whose image is on man? Genesis 1, 26 and 27. God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. To be in the image of God, to have moral volition and desires, it's a mind that experiences consciousness and intelligent thought, a soul full of emotion. It is the imprint of the creator on the created. You are literally minted out of God's wealth. You are God's and he made you. You do not owe God 10% of your wealth and a day of your week. You are God everything that you are. Jeremiah 10.23 says, A man's life is not his own. Ezekiel 8.4, Behold, all souls are mine. God made you and he imprinted his image on every male and female so that we, male and female, would live a holy life, trusting in God for that life, filling the physical realm with love and good works. You were made to glorify God in your body, in the physical world. 
That is why you were rendered. I don't have this here. I'm going to say it. God is invisible. He's spiritual. He's in the invisible lights. He is not physical. And then he creates the physical realm. And he creates something to be God in the physical realm, so to speak. And that is man, who bear his image to be like God in the physical realm, in what we can touch, in mass, energy, space, and time, us. To be holy, like God is holy. But in our sins, we die. We die to God. It's like we tried to scratch that image off of our souls. Tried to claim our lives for ourselves. But we have no ability to sustain our own lives. So our reward, therefore, to reject life is to receive death. Death is our deserved consequence of trying to scratch that image off of our souls. It is all we can sustain. Death. But our merciful and loving God makes a way for us to come back to him to reclaim the image that we ourselves marred. And it took the death of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, to pay that debt and bring us back from death and from sin. And now, this is amazing. This should be stunning. This payment that Christ made when we put our faith in it, we become a new creation. Do you know what that means? Image restored. Image bearer once again, fully. So if we are to render the things to God that are to God's, that are God's, that means our heart and our mind and our soul and our body. 100% rendered unto God. If you render unto God 10%, you do not render unto God all that is God's. We render unto God all that is His. So think about your thoughts, which is paradoxical. Um, We take every thought captive to obey Christ, 2 Corinthians 10.5. Every thought captive. I don't know about you, but that's a little hard. Every single thought that you produce is owed to Christ. And so there's this battle in your mind for holiness where when, when an impure or violent or slanderous or evil thought enters your mind, you are to take it captive. You're to strike it down, perhaps with a thought of the goodness of God, perhaps with a thought of what Christ has done for you, perhaps with a thought of what lies in front of you in heaven, perhaps just with one of the promises that, we, that is true for us in Jesus Christ. We're striking down every evil thought taking them captive so that we can glorify God with our thoughts, with our mind. Their mind might rest in Jesus' promises. Glorify God with your whole body. Romans 6.13, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your bodies 
to God as instruments for righteousness. That's your whole body. You were created with a body so you could manifest the righteousness of God to the world, to creation. So your body is a tool or an instrument for the glories of God to be sung on, to be sung through. So you care for your body and you care for others' bodies. If someone is hungry, you give them food. If someone is naked, you clothe them. If they are without a home, you bring them in. You do not defile your own body with sexual immorality or damaging and addictive substances. You do not harm yourself. You do not eat too much. You do not eat too little. You care for your body so that you can glorify God with your body to its maximum potential. Your whole heart. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 37.4 Your heart is a desire factory. Constantly producing desires. You want and you want and you want. After that you want again. And he's This is saying, with all of those wants, with all of those desires, with everything that your heart yearns for, delight yourself in the Lord. And he will grant you the desires of your hearts. So I don't think that means you're going to experience immediate gratification. You're going to have a want and it will be met. Not in this life. But I think that does mean there will be an eternal satisfaction if we are fighting for joy like this because delight yourself in the Lord means take joy in the Lord. Fight for joy in the Lord. Trust in his promises. Again, like this one, delight in God or take joy in God and he will satisfy your heart. So fight for that kind of joy even though the world seems to be falling apart all around you. And I know that some of you right now feel like your worlds are falling apart. Are you fighting for joy in the midst of that? It doesn't mean that you're going to be happy and the sorrow will go away. It does mean that you can be joyful and sorrowful simultaneously. That God is the rock for your desires to stand on, to be met in. He will satisfy them. Okay. This is a fun one. All of your riches. I'm not saying this because we're almost at the end of the fiscal year. Dave, should I? Give to God all of your riches. Now, First uh, Timothy, Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So do not trust in your riches. And, and in that, I'm not saying if you're wealthy, do not trust in your I'm saying like if you have any money at all. Like remember the, the lady at the, the, the old widow at the temple who had two coins 
all that she owned in the whole world and put them into the offering plate. And here, I'm not asking people to put more money in the offering plate at all. But I want you to hear, do not trust in riches, but trust in God. Riches are uncertain, and they are passing away. God is certain, and he is eternal. So he will be our treasure if we put our trust and our hope and our love in him. Your wealth, be generous with it. Your lack of wealth, be generous with it. Do not live with a tight grip on your money, but with an open hand. Give to people freely to glorify God with your money. Maybe your wealth is represented in a house. Give to God freely. Give to people freely. And then, as we read in First Peter or in First Timothy, this is the beginning of truly living. Being generous with your money. So these are just a few ways out of so many more that we can render to God the things that are God's. Your mind and your heart, your body, your riches. There's just a few ways to render unto God the soul that is his and how we can bear the image that he has given to us. So he, is, he has made us a new creation in Christ he made us a new creation in Christ already. At the moment you believed, at the moment of justification, you became a new creation. And now, He is sanctifying us. He made us a new creation, and He is making us into a new creation. And so we are in this process of being made into the creation that He made us into. Right, and that's a little confusing. I get it. This became true of you. You're a new creation. And now we are living our lives to make that feel true, to look true, to become a, a reality to the people around us because I know that I'm not perfect. And now I am doing all I can by the power of the Holy Spirit to be holy as God is holy. And this is our sanctification. This is our rendering unto God all that is God's. Every day, every moment, rendering unto God the things that are God's. Because that's the way of life. Because we feel gratitude for this incredible gift of the, the only begotten Son of God being slaughtered on our behalf. We feel gratitude for that. And we want to express our love for Jesus who died for us through obedience. And like 1 John says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. And that statement is the opposite of legalism. Not obey my commandments so that you love me. It's because you love me, obey my commandments. Render the things, render to God what is God's? Okay, and as we bear this image in the fallen world that we all live, on, live in, let us bring to bear the kingdom of God upon the kingdoms of men. Pay your taxes dutifully, maybe even gratefully, 
recognizing that it does fund those people that God has sovereignly appointed over you to govern you, to administer, to protect. But I will say this with as much authority as you would give to me. Let us resist the government in issues of immorality and oppression. On the matter of abortion, let us fight and resist it until it is no more. On the issue of homosexual marriage, let us resist any systematized pressure that would have us accept it within our churches. We will resist any infringement upon us that would cause us to not obey or worship our God. So we will pay our taxes, but we will hold no allegiances to this governmental system of the world. You are not first a Republican or a Democrat. You are first a new creation, a citizen of the kingdom of God, loyal to the Savior, rendering unto God the soul that is His. Let's pray. Jesus, you answer with such wisdom and power. And you refused to be pigeonholed in any one system or another of this world, but transcend it. And I pray that you would help us to do the same. It is so easy to get caught up in the things of this world. Lord, I pray that we would be first (coughs) caught up in the things of your kingdom. Set our eyes on things that are eternal and not on things that are temporal. Help us to bear your image to this world around us. That people might see in our lives, on our hearts, in our words, the God of the universe. Lord, may we be lights to the people all around us and how we relate to the government, to politics, how we relate to people's expectations of us, to how we relate to you you calling us to holiness. Holiness. Make us your holy people today. Make us your holy people. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.